being rebuilt, this exterior building project that was uh, critical to the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. But now in chapter 8, I think what we see is a bit of a transition marked here, where Nehemiah now begins to focus on more of the interior work of rebuilding a people. So don't forget that Nehemiah is not just a story about rebuilding a wall, because the exile that came before this was not just a story about a people being physically conquered. See, that long before anyone had ever laid a hand to God's people, and long before the city of Jerusalem was sieged, you see, the people of God were experiencing uh, spiritual rot and decay as their hearts were turned away from God. Long before anything happened to them physically, you see, spiritually, they were under fire, turned away from God in their own hearts and given over to their sin. Second uh, Chronicles 36 paints a picture that I think is uh, very interesting. Uh, and it's, uh, it tells about all these kings that are kind of coming before uh, the exile happened, before the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And we see uh, just as many kings had before, uh, before him, Second Chronicles 36 says this, painting kind of this bleak picture of what the spiritual state of Israel looked like at this time. It says that uh, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord God and did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah at the Lord's command. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who was from Babylon, who had installed this king, who made him swear allegiance by God. He became obstinate and hardened in heart against returning to the Lord the God of Israel. And all the leaders and the priests of the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the Lord's temple that he had constructed in Jerusalem. And what we see leading up to this time of exile was that the spiritual state of the, the leaders of Israel really emanated out to the people. That this same kind of rebellion and obstinate hard-heartedness was true of God's people. They had turned away from him. So the question for Nehemiah as we come to this book and we see this wall being rebuilt is not just about how do we begin to rebuild this city, but how do we rebuild a people? who are in the state of inner spiritual ruin? How do we rebuild a people whose hearts were far from God? And I think the big idea that I want us to see in this passage today is that God's people experienced renewal when they began to center their lives on God's word. God's people began to experience renewal not just physically, but spiritually, when they centered their lives on God's word. So what does it mean to center our lives on God's word? I want us to see uh, just a few aspects here uh, in this text, in this chapter, uh, that, that I think really describe what it means to have our lives centered on God's word. The first one is this. God's people experience renewal when they wake up to the wonder of God's word. When they wake up to the wonder of God's word. Read with me in verse 1, it says this, And all the people... I think Jason was teaching the kids' class, so I think, I think that was the reason for all the looking around, by the way. Just FYI. <laughs> Verse 1, let's read this together. It says, All the people uh, came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book 
of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Something that I think is really important to see here is that this effort to see the law of God read and this book uh, be taught to them did not take place in the temple led by the priests, but rather it happened in the public square and it was led by and begun by the people. Right? I promised my wife I wouldn't make a joke about the Watergate, but just understand uh, that this is just a public place. This is kind of a public square where all the people would have been gathered. And so far from the temple, they say, bring it out here, bring it to us. You kind of get this feel of this grassroots movement to hear the word of God proclaimed and to restore it as central, not only to their own lives, but to their society as well. Verse 2 through 3 says that, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So you can just, for a moment, just imagine this scene. Everyone who could understand was there. And for six hours straight, approximately, they stood there and listened attentively, it says. There are no clever jokes, no graphics for, for whatever they were studying. No sermon illustrations or anything of the kind. Just a reading and explanation of the scriptures. Now right now, I'll talk for about 35 minutes and all of you will sit down. We're not standing in the room and cheering and amening and all of these things. But what would compel the people to have this kind of desire and passion to see the word of God read? What, what's behind this commitment to standing there outside chasing their toddler kids around and keeping everyone squarely in attention. Well, it's because they believed that this word was a revelation from God himself and that it had the power to change their lives. You see, understand that for too long, Israel had experienced the ruin of their disaffected and disenchanted lives leading up to and throughout the exile. In the degradation of their sin, they had become ambivalent towards God's word, trading what they knew to be true, good, and beautiful for what was wicked and broken. It had been pushed to the side far away from being the center of their lives, far away from being something that formed them and captivated their mind's attention. But something here had shifted. Some scholars suggest that there's this moniker, actually, if you can read in the Quran, that uh, Jews and Christians are called people of the book because many nations around began to identify these people by their commitment to uh, the word of God that they read. And so uh, the, the, the Quran gives provisions that allow these people to do their thing, these people of the book. And some historians suggest that this moniker really was probably born around this time as, as Israel was characterized by this recommitment to the centrality of God's word word in their life. And we can only assume that God had used this exile, this time under Babylonian rule, to awaken them to the wonder of his word. That is, to see it once again is true, beautiful, and good, to see it as relevant and meaningful for their lives and for their world. You see, there's no other possible explanation for this radical reorientation that we're observing right here. You see, what we see in verses 1 through 3 is a people who believe that revival was possible through an encounter with God through his living word. And so they took matters in their own hands. They say, bring out the book. Let's begin to read this. Let's begin to study this. Let's understand its meaning for our lives and for our community. And I just want to ask as we just look at, look at their commitment. And look at their passion for God's word. What would it look like? I just want you to consider for us to have the same sense of passion about the scripture. 
What would it look like for us to cultivate the sense of wonder that captivated God's people here? I think if I pulled the room, I, I, I assume that every single person would say that they want to have a vibrant engagement with God's word. I don't think I have to like raise hands or anything like that. I'm sure that if I just ask the question, would you like to have a really vibrant, life-giving study of God's word? Would you really like to know it and be shaped by it and for your whole life to revolve? I'm sure you'd say, yeah, that sounds great. Every one of us might desire that, but often our experience when we read the Bible, when we interact with God's word is cold, dull, and dutiful. That's not to make a statement about the nature of God's word. That's just being honest about our own situation. Often we look at this book and we we question, is there any relevance here to me? Is there a message here for me? Is God even speaking to me in this word? We read the Bible and we say, this feels old. This feels outdated. What does this mean for my life right now? And I would suggest, by the way, uh, the law is a thousand years old when they're reading it here. So if it spanned that much time, I promise it spans this much time. But what I want you to consider is that rather than waiting on lightning to strike or for inspiration to hit, that we wake up to the wonder of God's word instead through prayerful, deliberate, and consistent seeking. Prayerful, deliberate, and consistent seeking. I don't think that God's people gathered here intending to manufacture some kind of revival. Instead, they saw God's word for what it was and said, let's make an effort to be here, to hear from God's word, to study it, to know it, to integrate it into our lives, to become obedient to it. And I know that I'm speaking here to a lot of people, like I said, who have that heart and have that desire, but maybe have an experience that doesn't quite match that. Maybe you're asking, what if I've tried over and over and over again to really know and have passion for God's word? When I read the Bible, though, it's just cold. I feel indifferent and it feels like a dull experience. What if I've tried all of that and gotten nothing as a result? And what I would encourage you to this morning is to continue on, to press on and prayerful, deliberate, and consistent seeking. There might be a time when you are studying God's word and you feel the silence of God, and we don't always know why God might be silent, why sometimes in our lives he speaks to us so clearly through his word and sometimes he does not. But what we do know, because we know this about God, is that it isn't arbitrary. It's not meaningless. In these moments when we feel the dullness and coldness, when we read God's word, be patient, as his word often tells us. And wait on the Lord. Be prayerful and deliberate and seek. We can't always, like I said, like these people here, uh, manufacture some type of revival or spiritual renewal in our hearts. However, what we shouldn't do is mistake a failure of success for a failure of effort. Right? We might come to God's word and we might not get the outcome that we were expecting. Maybe in our hearts that feels like a failure of finding the success that we hope to have. We cannot mistake that for a failure of effort. One thing that we can definitely do right now, every single one of us in our lives, is eliminate it as a factor that we didn't seek God in his word. And maybe he doesn't meet us there like we expected. Maybe he doesn't speak to us as clearly as we would have hoped or would have wanted. Maybe our hearts don't don't burst into life every time that we read God's word, and we can't always control that. And by his spirit and by by the power of his word, we can seek that, be deliberate and prayerful. But one thing we can definitely do is eliminate as a factor that we didn't seek. The second thing 
is that God's people experience renewal when they devote themselves to the study of God's word. So in verse 4, it says here that Ezra, the teacher, uh, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And so what we see is that God's people began to uh, build this type of, type of platform. We'll call it like a proto-pulpit. And the purpose wasn't to elevate Ezra and say, hey, look, we've got this, we got this man of God here ready to teach us the law. No, the purpose was to elevate in their gathering the study of God's worship, so, or God's word. So as they gathered for worship, as they gathered to hear, it was just really born out of necessity. As we want to elevate this, we want people to be able to hear you. So here we are, we're going to raise you up so that all the ears might hear from the word of God. And if you think, uh, maybe if you've grown up in the church or if you've seen a bunch of church buildings, uh, perhaps the overfamiliarity uh, doesn't do a service, but if you just think about the architecture of a church building, uh, there's kind of a theology embedded in that, right? It's not because of platform building or building our own personal ministry brand that pastors stand up on a pulpit. Uh, they used to be much more ornate than they are right now, but it's not for any of those reasons, but for the purpose of saying that we are here to study and gather around the word of God. There is a theology built into the way that we construct churches and order our gatherings for worship. And that's what happens here in verses five through six. It says that Ezra opens the book in full view of all the people. You kind of get this idea that it's there displayed for all to see everyone, men, women, and children, everyone from young to old gathered around displayed for all to see. And what they did was they simply elevated the word of God in their community and allowed it to work. And it did. People were moved and changed, and compelled to worship. Much how you guys are really feeling this sermon right now. There were amens and chants all around the room, praising God in worship for what they heard. And we see that these priests are introduced in verse 4, and they have a job here in verses 7 through 8, and it's pretty interesting. It says that all these priests, if you can imagine, all the, all the elders of the church, so to speak, are gathered around the pulpit, and it says that they were translating and giving meaning as Ezra spoke so that the people could understand. Now, in some sense, I'm sure that some preaching book somewhere here highlights uh, that this is just what good biblical preaching is, right? Uh, that, a, that a good preacher will, will dutifully draw out the meaning of the word and, and make it where it's understandable and applicable to its hearers. And maybe that's true. Maybe there's an aspect of that that's happening here because these people are not very familiar with the word of God. But there's also a more literal reason uh, for this need for translation and giving meaning. And it's because many of the people now gathered back in Jerusalem had lived their entire lives in exile and spoke and wrote in Aramaic. And so this Hebrew scripture that was being read to them might feel like a foreign language. Maybe it was something they weren't too familiar with. And so whatever sense it was, though, the purpose of their study was to really understand the true meaning and message of God's word to their lives. And it was important. They made it a matter of priority to accurately and effectively communicate the word that people could hear because they believed that it had the power to change lives believed it had the power to bring about spiritual renewal. And then we see in verses 9 through 12, when the first time I read it, I thought it was kind of a strange scene, right? Uh, I would love for 
when I preach and this effort goes into a message for people to respond and, 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 and to see the life change that happens, like that's, that's a wonderful thing to see, to know that God used something like that. And then I see something that feels a little strange to me in verses 9 through 12, because it says that all of these leaders go out, so these elders go out among the people, and as they're talking with them, it says that they were quieting those who were mourning and overcome with emotions as they heard God's word. They said, quit crying. This isn't a day for mourning. This is a day for rejoicing. So what's that all about? Maybe they just didn't like the praise. Maybe they thought it was inappropriate. What's all of this about? Wouldn't it be a good thing that if you read God's word, if you preached God's word, that people were recognizing their sin and repenting and turning to God? I think there's an explanation. In verse 9, it seems that the leaders recognized something that was both forgotten and neglected during the exile. You see, according to Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6, the first day of the seventh month, which was that day, was meant to be a day of celebration called the Feast of Trumpets. And on this day, God's people were to cease working, to devote themselves to introspection and repentance, to take a hard look at their lives as they made a sin offering to the Lord. It was a day of observing their own sin and grieving for it and looking within themselves and offering a sacrifice to the Lord for their sin. It was a day of acknowledging their sin while reminding themselves of God's gracious covenant with them to forgive them and cover that same sin. So understand that as the leaders were going around and engaging with the people, they weren't just coldly dismissing their emotions and and grief over their sin, nor were they offering trite well wishes to cheer up and feel better. Rather, they were acknowledging their sin alongside them, just as God's word had commanded them to do. But what they were doing when they told them to not grieve, to not mourn, is that they were pointing them and reminding them to the hope that they had in their God, who was merciful and gracious to forgive. You see, I want to suggest to us this morning that this is the kind of inner transformation and work that God does in the interior of our lives that only happens when we devote ourselves to studying and knowing his word. You see, when we read the Bible, We are met with truth that illuminates our mind in light that reveals what sin exists in the shadows of our lives. But we are also reminded of God's grace for our sin and the mercy that is ours in Christ. We need to be reminded of these things often because we can so easily become blind to our sin, unaware of the deceit that has infected our minds, disheartened by the sin that we can't seem to overcome. But when we come to God's word in a posture of submission, we find the wisdom and power of this double-edged sword, Hebrews 4 says, to shape, correct, and mend our broken lives. So I just want to ask, if you just took stock of your life, is your life characterized by this kind of devotion to scripture? Is your life characterized by this kind of devotion to scripture? Where you really seek God there. Whether despite what we feel, despite the season of our life, despite what other priorities and responsibilities brim to the surface, is your life characterized by this central devotion to God's word? And if not, I would just encourage you this morning not to take a, take a leap and become this biblical scholar. Not to take the leap and become somebody overnight who has spent 20 years really basking in and understanding and growing in God's word. I just want to ask you to consider this morning, what would it look like to just take the next step of faithfulness to study and know God's word? 
And this might sound like trite and oversimplistic. I know that sometimes like people cringe when they hear a sermon and somebody says, pray and read your Bible more. But we ought to do those things, right? Maybe for you that's saying like, I have no time carved out in my schedule. Like the priority of reading God's word doesn't fit in my day. Maybe that's just adjusting your day. You're not that busy. I promise. Nobody is. Maybe that's just adjusting your day and changing your priority. Maybe that's listening to the word being read while you're on a commute. Maybe that's just taking seven minutes in the morning while you're downing a cup of coffee before your kids spill it on the ground to really read and study God's word. What does it look like to just take that next step of faithfulness right now? I promise it won't return void. God's word promises that it will not. God will bear fruit in your life. Maybe you won't see it immediately or overnight. Maybe it'll be a season of silence and real labor and deliberate study of God's word before you really feel like he meets you there. But understand, as we see here in this example, life change and spiritual renewal is on the other end. So I just encourage you to think this morning, what does it look like to take that next step of faithfulness to study and know and obey God's word? The third thing is this. God's people experience spiritual renewal when they become doers of God's word. In verses 13 through 14, it says that all the people, they went to bed one night and they came back the next day. It says that it's Ezra and Nehemiah, or Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah and all these elders. And then it also says that the family heads were there as well to study the words of the law again. And I think the idea kind of embedded there that the family heads were gathered with them is that this law that they were reading and rediscovering was meant to be integrated and restored back into every house and home throughout Jerusalem. And as they are studying, they find again further teaching about what they should presently be observing. This other festival called the Festival of Booths. And maybe that's something that you're not familiar with. Maybe you're like, what the heck are all these festivals? I can't keep them straight. That's okay. I get that. Uh, but the point is that as they're, as they're studying God's word, they find something else, an area of, of neglect, an area of disobedience that they weren't even aware that was there that they ought to be observing on the second day of the seventh month of Festival of Booths. And so all the people went out to spread the news to others, it says in verse 15, and began to make the necessary preparations to observe this festival. So while it's not the focus about what exactly the festival of booths is, the point is that they did it, right? The point is that they became obedient to God's word. But while it's not the focus, it is important what this festival was and what it represented in the spiritual life of God's people. You see, this festival of booths was literally this physical act of creating these temporary shelters and domiciles for themselves to remind themselves of God's faithfulness and provision throughout the wilderness wandering. Right? And so they participated in this kind of uh, creative act of worship together to remind themselves of what was true about their God. You see, reminding themselves about who God was in these wilderness wanderings remind them about who God was right now as they returned from exile to rebuild this city. These, these commands of God understand this one and every other one in Scripture are not arbitrary. Right? They're meaningful and meant to be faith-shaping. But like I said, I think the point that, that really we should drive home and understand is that there was a posture of submission to God's word and a commitment to making a practice to really do what it said. Even when it was inconvenient, maybe seemed irrelevant, and required some level of sacrifice from the people. 
And I think that's important for us to see here in this text that spiritual renewal doesn't just come as a result of studying the Bible and knowing a bunch of doctrine and knowing a bunch of theology, but really practicing what you come to learn. We can't find spiritual renewal from just memorizing a bunch of Bible verses or laying it on our foreheads when we go to bed bed at night or reading Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. No, we find spiritual renewal when we study the Bible and do what it said. Growth, change, and transformation come from doing, and that is bringing our lives into alignment with God's word, allowing it to renovate every part of our lives and restructure our priorities and realign the trajectories of our hearts and mind. John Stott said it this way, We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. That's real submission to God's word. To open it up and sit before it and say, God, do what you will with me. James 1, 22 through 25 warns us. We studied at the beginning of this year, right? It warns us about the self-deluded fools who are mere hearers of the word and never do what it says. James 1 says that they're no different than a person who looks at themselves in a mirror and turns away and immediately forgets what they look like. It's a person who doesn't have the integrity of their heart, mind, and life, who can't practice what they preach because of their own hypocrisy. James says that these people are fools and they can't expect to receive a blessing from God. They can't expect spiritual renewal because they are hearers only and do not do what it says. Now, just to be clear, there is grace for the hypocrite. There is grace for the hypocrite. There is grace for the one whose faith has failed. There is grace here for the doubter, for those whose affections for God have grown cold, for the one who is weary in their fight with sin, for those who read their Bibles and feel nothing. There is grace. In the truest sense, the gospel finds us here weak and in need of a grace that is beyond ourselves. But understand that same grace of God doesn't intend to leave us there. Titus 2 says that the grace of God has appeared into our lives, teaching us to denounce all ungodliness and worldliness. The grace of God has come into your life that you might be transformed and experience life in the place of death. That you might experience light in the place of darkness. The grace of God has come that you might be changed into Christ's likeness. And we bring all of that baggage into God's word as we study and attempt to align ourselves by the power of his spirit and by his grace to what it says. And we don't consider with radical honesty our own sin and hypocrisy in light of God's word to know what we must do to overcome those things and earn the favor of God. Rather, it is because of that grace and favor of God that we can come to him and seek renewal that we know that we can find there. And so it's in that context that we can ask that question in this context of grace that is true for every single one of us. Where am I not a doer? Where am I not a doer? That's not a question that we ask fearful of the shame that it compounds in our life. That's not a question that we ask in grief. 
That's not a question that we ask fearing the consequences of our, ask, ask, our actions. That is a question we ask in the context of the gospel, in the context of grace. Where is my life not in alignment with this word that I read? You see, God intends to transform us by his word. That might sound trite and overly simplistic, but it's true. God means to bear fruit in our lives when we study and devote ourselves to his word as meaningful and relevant and impactful to our lives. And as we seek this renewal by his word, in his grace, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe in prayer and with devotion that he is shaping us and forming us into the image of Jesus just as he says that he will. And that's the trajectory of our lives, as I mentioned before. You see, the grace of God has appeared and it is continuing to work every single day in every one of our lives. And God is mediating that work so often by his word where we encounter the living God in his living word. And we do these things. We steward this time that we have well to really seek him, to know him, to understand and obey him. And we do all of these things, understanding that Jesus Christ has come for us, has paid for our sin, has covered, uh, covered our debt on the cross by his own sacrifice. And we understand that he is coming again. And in that time between the times, he is making and shaping and forming us into the image of Jesus. And so we meet him there, seeking the renewal that we know can be found because we know that it is his promise. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you and he took the cup of the covenant saying this is my blood shed for you and he instructs us that as often as we gather we are to uh, eat this meal and drink this drink in remembrance of Jesus until he comes again and so we position ourselves quite literally as we observe communion at the end of our gatherings to remind ourselves of this context of grace that we have but to remind us of the hope and the future restoration and renewal that is ours in Jesus as well, and to remind ourselves that in this time between the times, he is doing that work, and so we commit to knowing and studying and obeying his word then. And as it, as it says in his word, we are instructed to eat this meal and drink this drink as, as often as we gather, to remind ourselves of the sufficiency of Christ for us and the work that he will surely bring to completion. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we will observe that meal. If you are not a Christian, we ask that you do not take this meal, but instead our invitation is that you take Christ. Uh, this grace that we speak about, this life change and transformation that we, that we study happening among his people through his word, can be yours in Christ. You can call upon him today. But if you are a Christian, I'd ask you just to take a moment of, of silence to observe yourself, uh, much like the festivals that God's people had, this time for introspection and repentance of the things we do know and the things we don't know, seeking God to provide clarity of heart and passion from there. And so take a moment, uh, position yourself rightly, and then you can take of the elements that are behind you uh, in the room, and then we will be joined by Kimberly for another song of worship. Let's pray. God, that we, we ask that you would continue a work of transformation in us. Father, uh, you have inaugurated a grace that is beyond ourselves, that enters our lives through Jesus. Uh, Father, you have brought us into your family uh, by his blood and by your love and mercy for us, even in our sin, even in our worst. Father, you have brought us to yourself and declared mine over each and every one of us. And you are making us to look like Jesus day after day. Father, we ask that you continue that work. 
Father, I pray that through your word, we would know you, be reminded of who you are, be reminded of the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Father, that you would ignite a white hot passion among us to teach and proclaim and to study and know, but really obey, become doers of your word also. Father, do that work among us. It is not too simple for us. We seek you there and we ask for change. Bear all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.